Hello and welcome to the Skeleton Factory Podcast, episode 11. This is Adam coming to you from Austin, Texas. And you were just listening to Ministry doing a cover of The Grateful Dead's Friend of the Devil. Taken from a concert on October the 2nd, 1994 at the Shoreline Amphitheater in Mountain View, California. Good stuff. Well, what has been going on? A whole bunch. November seems to be already completely flying by. I hope you had a lovely Halloween. Mine was uh, pretty, pretty chill, actually. Went out to a Korean restaurant called Osio. That was really nice. And then I went home and um, picking movies for Halloween is tough. You know, you you can only stay awake so long and you can only uh, drink so much. So what was decided upon was Cabin in the Woods and Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3. So that's what I did on Halloween. Uh, Cabin in the Woods. Rewatch that. I watched it during the pandemic. The great pandemic of 2020. The worst year of everyone's life. Except for me. I had a great time. Um, Wow. Revisiting Cabin in the Woods. Uh, it's great. It's very funny. It's very clever. Um, it has a healthy dose of absurdity. But the cleverness justifies the absurdity. Listening to a young Chris Hemsworth speak in an American accent just leaves me wanting for the Hulk Hogan movie from fellow NRA member uh, and director Todd Phillips. Is he an NRA member? I don't know. Probably not. I heard that somewhere. Some guy at a bus stop told me that. Hmm. Let's see. I am sipping on... Still Austin, straight bourbon whiskey, 49.2% alcohol by volume and 98.4 proof. Distilled and bottled by Still Austin Whiskey Company. Austin, Texas, USA. Very good. I've had this, um, I've had this in cocktails around town, but I... Went and got me a bottle for the house. And uh, it's really good. So I have a little bit of that. And I also have a cup of coffee here because I like to get cross-faded. Is that what kids call it? Cross-faded? Um, anyway, I also watched Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, which I did cover in a previous episode. My... It was in my, let me see, I guess it was in episode 10 of my three-part series of what is the best year for films. 
in the decade of the 1990s. And Leatherface, I think, was in, if I'm not mistaken, in the winning year of 1990. And I, I mean, don't get me wrong. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1 is a perfect horror film. Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is a lot of fun. It's got a lot of quotable stuff in it, and it's got a lot of wild, crazy absurdity, but it's also completely incoherent. <laughs> incoherent in kind of a fun way, but I would say in terms of like a movie with like a structured story, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 is really good. Um, you know, I'd say it's... Mm, I'd go as far as to say it's more entertaining as a horror film, if that makes sense. It's more entertaining as an actual horror film with like a beginning, middle, and end, and all the characters make sense, and their relation to all the other characters makes sense, and you're actually... Um, like the actual bad guys feel scary and bad and ominous... But uh, it's, yeah, I liked it a lot. It's it's very it's very much a retreading in the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, but it's cool. I like the special effects. I like the story. The cast is really good. The copy of copy of the DVD that I have is actually signed by Ken Forey, who is in the movie, and we all know Ken Forey. He was in the original Dawn of the Dead. He was Joe Grizzly in the Rob Zombie Halloween movies. Uh, big fans of Rob Zombie here at Skeleton Factory. Big fan. Still keeping tabs on his Munsters uh, remake. What else did I watch? Let's see. I watched. I well, since it's 2021. It's currently we are living in the year of 2021. Whenever you're listening to this, you're probably listening to this in the future. You may be listening to this in 2022 or 23 or 24. Who knows? But as of the recording of this episode, it is 2021, and you know what took place in 2021? The world. Of Johnny Mnemonic. Yes, the world of Johnny Mnemonic starring Keanu Reeves and Dina Meyer, who was in Starship Troopers. And she was sort of a, a like a mid-90s crush for me. And every other young teenage man, I'm sure. Uh, Henry Rollins was in it. Dolph Lundgren. Ice tea, and of course, Takashi Kitano. It's a strong cast. Takashi Kitano, uh, as we know from, um, I like I forgot he was even in it, and I think the reason why I forgot he was in it is because the last time I saw Johnny Numak was in 1995, and I was uh, exposed to. Battle Royale, which uh, Kitano was in, 
and actually, it, you know, Battle Royale didn't even come out yet. I don't even think it came out till I was out of high school. Um, you know, I never saw Violent Cop. I never saw any of that, so I had no no exposure to him. Um, I will say, I I actually the movies definitely has some technological clunkiness to it, which I think people sort of attack the movie for that among, I mean, there's a bunch of things they attack it for, but they definitely are look at, you know, was it Johnny mnemonic is a quick rundown. Johnny mnemonic is stars Keanu Reeves as Johnny mnemonic. And what he is, is he's a, he's a courier where he actually carries data in his brain because he has he has in implants he has like silicon uh electronic uh implants and things in his head his head is basically a like a it's just a storage it's the cloud <laughs> johnny Numont before the cloud we had Keanu reeves's brain okay am i blowing your mind and he had 80 gig 80 gigs of space in his head. That's that's about all. I'm sure someone has a really smart uh, take a jab at Keanu Reeves joke about uh, him only being able to hold 80 gigs in his head. Anyways, he has to hold a he has to hold some information in his head, and his whole thing is he transports the informa- the sensitive information from his clients to other clients who are waiting on the information and he's not privy to what the information is. He doesn't ask what it, the data is and you know, there's um, clients never tell him. So basically he has to go from China to New Jersey and it's a whole thing where he only has a finite amount of space in his brain to hold all this information. And he really needs to take this job because he wants to get all of the implant crap in his head removed and he wants a full restoration of his original memory because um, in order to hold all this stuff in his head he actually has to wipe some of his memories from his brain so he has no um, like uh, in the movie that he doesn't have a childhood basically he doesn't remember anything about his childhood because it's been removed in order to hold other information so he can do this very dangerous job so he is he's holding too much information than what his brain can actually hold so he has a very small window of time to transport the information to new jersey and get paid and if he doesn't um the sort of like electronic disease where like the computer data somehow seeps into his brain and kills him so he's taking a lot of risk doing this last job and Anyways, and, and you come across all the all the cast of characters along the way. And I rather enjoyed it. Uh, it's one of those movies where if you feel like you've watched too much shit or and you just need something to kind of relax to. <laughs> something, you know, there's there's different levels. There's stuff you put on in the background that you're not completely paying attention to, but you like that it's on in the background. And then there's stuff that you will actively pay attention to. You know, you're not on your phone. You're just watching it. And you 
aren't looking for something incredibly deep or anything, but you want something that's sort of visually entertaining, has some action here and there, and, and explores concepts in a way where you have to think a tiny bit, but nothing that's too strenuous. I'd, I'd say on a level of thinking, um, for most pedestrian people, you're looking at like, let's let's say Inception is sort of like way up at the top. Like there's so much crap going on in that movie where your brain is has to kind of think, um, even though I don't think Inception is necessarily the most intelligent film, but it, all the crap that's in it, I think Christopher Nolan weaves it together in such a way where like you really have to pay attention to what the hell's going on so you can even follow it. Because if you get up to go take a piss in the theater and you come back, like you might not, you might be completely lost. Um, so let's let's put Inception kind of up at the top, and then below that we'll put like the Matrix. The Matrix is incredibly easy to follow, but it's an again, it's one of those movies you need to pay attention to because they talk about all these sort of the concept of the one and what does it mean to be inside the Matrix and what is real and what is reality. There's all that kind of stuff going on. And then there's like, and then below that would be like Johnny Mnemonic, where, yeah, it, it kind of treads in that sort of same territory. Um, if you're, if you're into cyberpunk, if you're into um, writer William Gibson, it's interesting, and I I am considering revisiting this on an episode. So uh, stay tuned for that. Anyways, enough about Johnny Mnemonic. <laughs> what else did I watch? Um, let's see. I did watch... Oh, my. I did watch Antlers. I went and saw that in theaters. Uh, starring... Um, oh, my God. You know what? I'm going to... I keep calling the guy Fat Damon. And I feel like, one, I'm fat shaming him. Which I do think is necessary to some extent. Some people should be fat shamed. Not, not all fat people, but some should, you know, just as motivation to uh, alter their eating and exercising habits. Just a little bit, just a little prodding is okay. Um, but, uh, but he does look like Matt Damon and in, in antlers, he kind of sounds like Matt Damon too, but uh, so I'm not calling him fat Damon anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to look up the actor's name so I don't feel like a total dick. Jesse Plemons. Jesse Plemons. Okay. Uh, my apologies for calling you Fat Damon so many times. I think you're a good actor. And you're an actor who rocks a mustache. And I respect that. What could be said about antlers? Well, oh boy. I saw the th I saw the trailer and I thought, okay, that looks interesting. It, um, it could be total garbage, but the trailer kind of had me. Where the trailer made me feel like, here's um, like we're not going to show, we're not going to just show the monster in the trailer. If you want to see the monster, you have to watch the movie, and we'll sort of unfold the story of. Um, because it's basically a story of the Wendigo. If you never heard of the Wendigo, it's a mythological creature in the United States. And 
you know, I, I figured they would sort of unfold the story of the Wendigo and really get into how to defeat the monster, that sort of thing. You know, like most monster stories, <laughs> most horror movies where there's like some kind of uh, a creature of some type. At some points, a weakness is exploited by the main character so that the creature could be defeated. Like the, uh, <laughs> None of that happened in Antlers, by the way. Um, Antlers was... It's, it suffered, again, from what I call the, the us problem, which uh, I... I I coined that term, the us problem, where uh, it's in reference to Jordan Peele's film Us, where it ha- the film itself has all the ingredients of a good movie, but all the gre- ingredients were put in an order that um, are sort of nonsensical. Um, Antlers had good acting. It was shot very well. It had a good ambiance to it, but the, the the story was weak. I found the story to be very weak. You really don't know what the hell's going on when there's nothing wrong with that because the first sort of third of the movie, they kind of string you along because you don't know what's really happening. You just know that there's some fucking creepy malnourished kid who's collecting dead animals and throwing them into this room in his house that has a, you know, a triple bolted shut door and you don't know why he's doing that. You know, they, they were, they were, they were kind of, you know, the, the beginning of the movie was interesting, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't until a famous, uh, Famous, famous Native American actor Wes Studi. Was it Wes Studi? Let me make sure I'm not uh, being a total racist. And <laughs> okay, no, that wasn't Wes Studi. Wes Studi is the other guy. No, this was Graham Greene. Okay, so Graham Greene has this. Uh, There's one moment where they go to uh, Graham Greene's trailer that he lives in. He's like the former sheriff of this town. And all the characters go to his house. And he has this uh, exposition uh, dump, basically, where he's he explains the story of the Wendigo and how it has Native American roots and Native people's um, sort of folklore and storytelling. And he explains how the monster comes to be and how it needs to be destroyed. And, you know, it's just a scene where you're, you, you get to, <laughs> it's, it's at a perfect point in the movie where you're like, what the fuck is going on? And fucking Graham green is going to be there to tell you everything that's going on. So that before you fall asleep in the theater, you can actually watch the movie and kind of understand how this creature needs to be defeated by our main characters. So uh, Antlers was okay. I I wasn't I didn't feel I didn't leave the theater feeling like ecstatic or anything like that. It you know, if it's 
if you want to just if you're into like monster horror movies where there's some kind of creature and maybe there's a couple of you you can maybe have a group of people you can you just watch antlers but you know what antlers is really it's a it, antlers would be a very good episode of the x-files that's basically what it is yeah the running time is an hour and 40 minutes so with commercials antlers could have been 40 minutes i think yeah, I went to the theater and saw that, and I was, whatever. Okay, well, what I really want to talk about is I went and saw, uh, I, didn't, I didn't went anywhere, I, was, I watched it from home, because it was streaming. No, what I want to talk about is a movie called The Spine of Night. And I saw a ad for it on Instagram, and it looked interesting. It's animated film. I noticed immediately that it was a rotoscoped uh, movie. And if you're not familiar with what rotoscoping is, it's a type of animation where the movie itself will be acted by actual actors on camera. And then animation artists will come in and later and draw over the actual actors. We'll make an animated version of the actor on top of the the actor. So, and then the background that the actors are standing in usually. A rotoscope, like live action actor, will, will will be acting and doing their whole thing, but it usually it's in a, a place where the background is just empty, it's just blank, and all of the background is added in later. So, some good examples of that would be um, the movie Heavy Metal, uh, Fire and Ice, which I'll get to Fire and Ice. What else? American pop. I mean, there's a very long list of sort of famous rotoscoped movies, but specifically, if you were, uh, let's see, what, what's a really good example? A really good example of rotoscoping would be like, like if you grew up in the 80s, early 90s, whatever, or you just watch like reruns of 80s and 90s cartoons growing up, there was a cartoon called Jim and the Holograms. And Jim and the Holograms, if you watch the opening kind of like title theme song to it, it's very clear that the animation in the opening kind of title, the little title intro is much better quality animation than the actual cartoon of Jim and the Holograms. And uh, that opening title uh, intro is is rotoscoped. So, and when it's done well, it has this really strange kind of uh, uncanny valley 
uniqueness to it. Like it doesn't look like a regular cartoon. There's like something more alive and physical to it with varying degrees of quality, depending on what exactly you're watching. Rotoscoping has been around since the 1920s. From early, like, cartoons like Coco the Clown, some of um, Betty Boop, many of the moocher type of cartoons, sort of where they, uh, cartoons where Cab Calloway would be, they would draw over his dance moves and use his music and his voice and everything. And it gave this wonderful, haunting fluidity to the creatures and... So it's it's a it's a technology it's a technique that's been around for quite some time. Okay, so if you've seen if you've seen Ralph Bakshi's Fire and Ice or uh, his version of The Lord of the Rings, or you've seen A Scanner Darkly, also starring Keanu Reeves. And uh, the guy who was uh, Iron Man, Robert Downey Jr. And also starring the guy who was, uh, whatchamacallit, one of the guys from Antlers is in it. There you go. Look at that. Full circle. Anyways, rotoscoping is a technique that's been around for a long time. And I was really excited to see The Spine of Night. And I looked at the the cast, and you have, let's see, you have Lucy Lawless, who we all know as Xena, Warrior Princess from the 1990s. You have Patton Oswalt. You have Joe Maglianello. I think that's about as good as I'm going to say his name. Betty Gabriel and Richard E. Grant. Okay. So one thing I found most of these, um, I found that a lot of the voice actors, I don't know. They didn't really add much. They just sounded like regular people. They didn't have, they didn't sound like they were acting through voice. If that makes sense. I kind of found everyone's voice to be kind of boring. So, I mean, there's a few people who really were kind of hamming it up. But also, I want to say uh, this movie is an hour and 33, hour and 33 minutes long. It felt like it was fucking four hours long. Seriously. I started watching it and I fell asleep three times. And I was like, okay. Maybe I was just tired. Maybe I just had a long day. I'll just watch it tomorrow. So I watched it the next day. And I got about two-thirds of the way through it. And I started kind of dozing off. I just... I just couldn't follow the movie. Not that I couldn't follow it. It was just everything that was happening in the world that was being constructed just didn't make any sense to me. So my attention waned. I may have looked down at my phone once or twice. 
but and this is my my opinion. I mean, the following is my opinion, and if <laughs> so, you could take it for what it is. Um, I found uh, the spine of night to be sort of a a rotoscope nightmare. <laughs> I I found the quality of the rotoscoping to be cheap and amateurish. And not that I'm some great animator or something, but I am just going by my past experience with rotoscope in movies. Okay. And I found the quality of the rotoscoping to be very, cheap looking so there was that I didn't find the actors doing the voices to be very to be all that great I mean I mean there's I feel like the actors that they got to do voices a lot of them would have worked better in a live action version of this (laughs) like to be honest, um, let's see. There's something, and from what I understand, the way they rotoscoped this movie, they did it in a computer, and I get the advantages of using a computer to quickly um, make rotoscope as opposed to having animators sit there and hand draw over top actual film cells, you know, which, and there I actually saw uh, the, in the making of finer and ice, there is a whole section where they're talking to the animators. And I believe they said for, for every 77 frames, individual frames of animation that they have to hand draw. It's, four seconds of actual footage on the screen. So doing a feature length movie is must've took four fucking ever. So thank God for cocaine. But I found, I find computer rotoscoping um, to look incredibly robotic and clean, but it doesn't have any depth to it. Everyone looks sort of sausagey and dense looking and there's no sort of musculature. There's no sort of like muscle tone or basic angles on moving anatomy like knees or elbows or hands. There's just it was lacking faces. There's a lot of close-ups of faces in this. And subtle kind of facial tics, you know, acting. (laughs) All that is sort of like not in the movie at all. Like everyone's face looks like a two-dimensional just blob, basically. And, And look, I'm going to be comparing this movie to Ralph Bakshi movies. I'm just gonna, because that's the best... That is the best side-by-side comparison of 
one, the genre of a fantasy sword and sorcery, sword and sandal, whatever, whatever you want to call it type of fantasy movie. And not just an animation, but a rotoscoped animation film. So I think the comparisons are valid and they're, they're right there. And the Bakshi movies had, I noticed like things like the, the thickness of, of the, of the lines, the hand drawn lines of the characters, the way every, every, everything is drawn. You can see like variations of thickness. You know, it's, it's like basic sketching. If you've ever taken a basic, simple art class in like high school or college or something or art school, like there's certain techniques with pen and ink with pencil that you, whether if it's cross hatching or whatever, there's a definite visual variation of line thickness of whatever you're drawing. And with the spine of night, every, there wasn't, there was no variation. (laughs) There was just like, it looked like everything was outlined with a Sharpie. So I found that to be kind of distracting and taking away from moments that are serious. And I do, I, I've really avoided looking at any reviews online. Um, I've seen kind of like quick little writ, like typed out reviews that are just a couple of lines of things like, Oh, it's super gory and, and epic. And I mean, (laughs) I think the gore in it is about as fun as the gore in Halloween kills where the gore is, the thing with gore in movies is it's it's not a sustained, long thing. It's not something that just lingers on screen. It's very quick. It's kind of like um, a head exploding. <laughs> if you've ever seen Scanners or Chopping Mall or <laughs> a movie where someone's head explodes, it's shocking. It's very, It happens quickly, and it's very instantaneous and violent and that's how all the gore in the spine of night feels like it, it's like it's it's like the gore is kind of cool because it's very sudden and the fact that it's animated is kind of cool but i mean that's not enough to carry a movie just go ask halloween kills it's just not enough to carry the movie to be honest, the movie kind of left me wanting Fire and Ice, actually. And I ended up watching Fire and Ice after the second time I watched it. After I watched... After I... Uh, after I watched The Spine of Night for the second time, I watched Fire and Ice the next morning. I wanted to get some uh, comparison. I wanted to make sure I wasn't judging it too harshly. And I really thought about what I watched too. I really thought about the story and really tried to keep track of the whole story of the spine, the spine of 
what is it? The spine of the night? Spine of the night? Why can't I remember the... I can't even remember the title of the movie. The, the Spine of Night. And even that's a weird title. <laughs> they should have just called it Night Spine. That would have been better. Night Spine. Sounds like a, sounds like a metal band. It sounds like a sick metal band. Anyways... <laughs> The comparisons to Fire and Ice is obvious, but there were certain things why the, there's certain things, for instance, why Fire and Ice was just better. Uh, first of all, it Fire and Ice sets up its world very, very quickly, and I'm sure some people would argue that the Spine of Night is a more complex fantasy story, but it's not. It's a bunch of poorly explained characters and locations that all meet, like, run into each other at some point for no reason. <laughs> so, Fire Nice sets up. It sets up everything. So, okay, and anyone who wants to debate this. And I'm not totally shitting on the movie. Like, I... Uh, the, the Spine of Night is okay. It's okay. Uh, it, I feel like it could have been shorter. I feel like a lot of the story between characters could have been... That could have been expanded on and tightened up a little bit. Because it gets into this sort of, like, abstract, metaphysical realm where I just feel like it kind of the movie just sort of like drifted off literally into space and I was left sort of confused and underwhelmed, but watch the first 20 minutes of fire and ice and watch the first 20 minutes of spine of night fire and ice sets up every character and the relation to each other. And there's a lot of characters. There's characters from different d dominions, and but it sets up every character, their motivation, and then they do something that's sort of necessary. And and that thing is in movies or television shows. If you notice that characters just call each other by their names constantly, like no one's saying dude or. Amen, or or couples aren't calling each other by their pet names, which most people do. People are like, babe, or whatever. It's like when you see some sort of serious show where someone's like, David, I have to tell you something. The baby is not your, you know, it's like, like, I don't think I have called my significant number, uh, my significant other by her name. I don't even remember the last time I've actually said her name to her <laughs> like I don't remember so it's one of but Fire Nice does a thing where they constantly say everybody's name and so you're reminded because everyone's got like goofy fantasy names but in Fire Nice everyone's names are definitely more they're easier to remember and they sound really cool and epic in the world that they inhabit 
for instance, in Fire and Ice, you have characters like Dark Wolf. Right off the bat, Dark Wolf. One, he looks awesome. Like, he looks like an awesome character. The guy who voiced Dark Wolf not only is an impressive, imposing physical actor in in actual life, but when he's rotoscoped in costume with his voice, it really makes for a great character. You know what he sounds like? He kind of sounds like... Uh, Dark Wolf kind of sounds like Scott Glenn. You know who Scott Glenn is? He's... Uh, let's see. He's in... He plays... Clary Starling's boss at the FBI in Sounds of the Lambs. He plays Jack Crawford. He plays Wesley in Urban Cowboy. He's kind of old now. He was also in a movie called The Barber, where it was made a few years ago, and he's a bit older now, but he plays basically a barber who may or may not have been a serial killer. And there came a point in time where he was accused of being a serial killer, but ended up getting off on lack of evidence and whatever. But anyways, Scott Glenn has a great voice and the character of dark wolf has a great, just voice acting voice. And then there's characters like Gerald and Tigra. Tigra sounds like tiger. It sounds like whatever. It's like that's a that's an easy to remember name. And then there's uh, Larn and sort of the main warrior character and uh, the bad guy's name. Are you ready for the bad guy's name? His name is Necron. Necron. Like that's if that doesn't sound like a like a black metal band from Finland. Like I don't know what does. It's that is a memorable bad guy name. And they set up Necron in the fucking beginning of the movie. Immediately they set up who Necron is and how fucking powerful he is. So you understand the danger that the good guys are in and the power that Necron wields within the first 20 minutes of the movie. Okay, you don't have to kind of guess and they're not sort of like oh i have this power now or i'm able to do this i mean it's like you know immediately the danger that he poses straight away the spine of night okay the main character played by lucy lawless his name is zod like from superman <laughs> Son of Jarrell, kneel before Zod. It's it's pronounced Zod, but it's with a T, a silent T to Zod. And when you look at it spelled like, like it almost looks like I Zod, like those really bad shirts they used to sell at Mervyn's. Zod, who plays like a naked, a con a constantly naked woman, swamp witch who's, I don't know, uh, on sedatives the entire time, has absolutely no energy as a character. Um, Pat Oswalt had an interesting name, I guess. Lord Pyrantin. Pyrantin. Mm. Actually, that name sucks. <laughs> also... Pat Oswald is not a voice actor. 
And I know what you're thinking. Yes, he is, Adam. He was in Ratatouille. Hello. I'm like, yeah, okay. He played one specific character in a very specific movie. Okay? But that's not what I mean by voice actor. What I mean is, like, Andy Serkis. Andy Serkis can do live action. He can do... And he was Gollum from Lord of the Rings. He... It was uh, Caesar and all the Planet of the Ace movies. Like, he can do different voices, and he does the, um, what was it, the motion capture acting as well. They should have got fucking Andy Serkis. <laughs> they, the, like, they could have probably cut out half the characters in this movie and hired Andy Serkis to play, like, three or four or five characters. If somebody pitched that, if someone was like, if someone was like, we can rather get Patton Oswalt to play one of the kind of like lesser evil bad guys who gets dispatched rather easily in the beginning of the movie, or we can get Andy Serkis to play like three or four, like like Peter Sellers, just play multiple characters and we'll rotoscope him. I, dude, get fucking Andy Serkis. Anyways, Patton Oswalt, his voice is too recognizable. You know what I mean? It's not like James Earl Jones got tons of voice acting work playing characters after he was Darth Vader. His voice is too fucking recognizable. He's, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, to me, this is just me. I feel like Pan Oswald, like James Earl Jones, like once you hear his voice in a character that is very successful, like Ratatouille, like Star Wars, like you are typecast into that character now. Like you can't hear that person's voice anywhere else without being reminded of a pre. So I don't know. I think I get that. Like, you know, Patton Oswald probably is very passionate about the source material and whatever, but I don't know. I actually found his voice to be incredibly distracting, even though he had like his character was a completely despicable bad guy who, you know, when he got his comeuppance, what, you know, you, you felt good about it. You're like, yeah, fuck that guy. But I don't know. Just his, his voice was just a little too distracting. There's a character named Oric. I'll give you a million dollars. If you could spell that. Oric. Oric. How do you spell it? Wrong. It's spelled U R U Q. Uric. It should have been Ulrich. Like Lars Ulrich from Metallica. That's how it should have been spelled because it just, it, it's a little more phonetic. Like when someone says Uric, you're just like, what? Is that what, how did, what? That's, that's, you need a name that people can kind of subconsciously feel that they can spell. Having some goofy fuck name is, like, it's distracting. And the actual, like, the main bad guy, like, the main bad, bad guy, um, his character name was Gaul-sir. 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 It's like ulcer. It's like a gallstone and an ulcer together. Imagine... An ulcer, 
the size of a gallstone passing through the urethra of your flaccid, scared penis inside of a medical facility in an operating room with a bunch of people watching while you're high on Dilaudid. That's what I think about when I hear gall sir. What I don't think of is a evil sorcerer wanting to fucking, you know, take over the world. I don't think of that. The gall sir, G H A L hyphen S U R. That's the bad guy's name, the main bad guy. Um, there's a guy named Falcon Hawk. That's cool. <laughs> oh, God. Anyways, enough about the people's names. I know that's... I understand. It's a nitpick. Okay? I understand that. Especially for all you, like, fantasy novel people where it's just... You're used to goofy fuck names. I totally understand. Okay? if the, That's a nitpick. Let me take a little hit of my whiskey here. Woo, that is that is lovely. What else? Let's see the the main character. Yes, the main character Zod. Oh boy. Okay. This is going to get me in trouble, but I don't care. Because I'm comparing the Spine of Night with Fire and Ice. Okay, just building some context in case you forgot what we're talking about. The main character, Zod, um, the movie opens with Zod walking up the side of a, through a snowstorm up a mountain, and she's completely naked. She's completely butt naked, besides some sort of ornamental, sort of like, uh, kind of wrist anklet things and uh, a headdress made of a skull. Other than that, she's totally bush out naked. Okay. And, you know, uh, how do I say this nicely? She looks like a sort of a, like a, a poor quality sex doll. That's how her body looks. You know, there there wasn't... Uh, any sort of femininity to her movements or her shape at all. And I found that to be kind of odd that she was just completely naked. Not even like a loincloth, just butt naked. (laughs) Walking in the snow. Not, Not that walking through the snow... And, you know, a loincloth makes more sense. But the fact that she's just comes from this, I don't know, I wouldn't say they're a race of people, but these like kind of like tribal people who were just just nude constantly. And I think, okay, so in the beginning of the movie, like her entire tribe is murdered and, you know, and her village is burnt to the ground. She's the only survivor, but she's like, she's the only one who's just completely naked. I don't know. I don't know. I don't understand what was up with that. So the character, so contrast that with the character of uh, Tigra from Fire and Ice. 
Now, Tigra was drawn in a way where she looks like a real human woman. Like the femininity is, is there. Okay. There there's, she looks, she feels real. And I mean, uh, this goes for the men too. Like the men kind of, especially the more kind of like warrior men is, are just like unimpressive looking. You know, and if you're make, it's a cartoon. You can make them look like anything. You can make them fifty feet tall, and you know you can make them all look like Ronnie Coleman. But it's like you you don't. You just make everyone look like like they don't have joints in their body, and they have absolutely zero muscle tone at all. It's like I I just don't get it. Also, Tigra is a infinitely more fascinating character in the in the first 20 minutes of the movie tigra is a much more fascinating character you know exactly who she is and where her standing in the world is and where it's going to probably be in the future than following the character of zod the entire movie because spoilers this is all gonna be spoilers by the way i don't I don't have the patience for people who do non-spoiler reviews, by the way. I'm like, what? just review it or don't review it. And I still contend that this podcast is not... I don't review movies, really. I just... Uh, I just recommend things I like. And I kind of... I try to steer away from shitting on things. And I'll give credit where credit's due and everything, but I mean, if I don't like something, I'm just I'm just gonna be like, I don't I don't like it, you know. And I'm not gonna be insanely hyperbolic. I'm like, this is the biggest piece of shit ever fucking made. Anyone who watches it is a piece of shit. Everyone who made the movie is a piece of shit. And fuck all them. And I hope they all die of AIDS. Like, I'm not that fucking scorched earth reviewer person because I just don't care. I don't put that much I don't put that much of my fucking emotions into this type of shit. I just point out what I see and uh and then that's it. <laughs> anyway, back back to the movies. So okay, so Tigra from Fire and Ice has no magical powers whatsoever. Um Almost everyone in Fire and Ice has no magical powers. They don't have any kind of uh, knowledge of sorcery or anything like that. Everyone is sort of reliant on their physical uh, might and their 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 cunningness in their in their way to strategically outthink the enemy and you know and fighting skill, whether if it's hand to hand or with weapons. That's not not everyone has fucking glowing eyes and <laughs> it's like there's not a lot of that anyways the zod the swamp witch from fucking the the spine of night is has magical powers like she has she's like a sorceress she's a witch actually she's referred to as like swamp witch because she's from a swamp and she's a witch so swamp witch but tigra is just like 
the daughter of a king that rules a kingdom. And the kingdom's called Firekeep. That's fucking sick. Firekeep. That sounds like... And that sounds like a really cool whiskey brand (laughs) or some shit. And where where Zod is from is called the Swamp of Bastal. Doesn't quite have the punch of Firekeep. But, you know, that's my opinion. But... Mmm. Speaking of whiskey... Mmm. Where was I? Oh, yes. So Tigra has no magical powers, but she's quick on her feet and has cunning, and she's she's able to outsmart her captors who are physically more powerful and outnumber her. And Zod... Okay, there... Okay, actually, here's some parallels. In the beginning of the movie, both Tigra and Zod both get captured and imprisoned, okay? They're locked in, a, in like, a prison cell. And Zod doesn't use her powers to escape from the prison without this other character known as a scholar, played by Gaul... Not played by, but he's the character of Gaul Sur who ends up becoming, like, the main bad guy, but he's sort of this scholar who is sent... uh, The scholar, he's... What is he a scholar of, Adam? Okay, real quick. There's this place called the Pantheon, and it's basically this library of knowledge, and all the people who who inhabit it are sort of... It's like the Vatican, and it's sort of like this library of, like, secret knowledge that the peasants don't get to know about. So it's sort of like this protected fortress and whatnot. And uh, and Galsor is already kind of like a fucking asshole, and he's you know he's like I'm smarter than everyone else, and everyone can fucking suck my dick because I'm a scholar from the pantheon. Blah blah blah. Anyways, him and him and Zod get locked up, and Zod like Zod has she has practiced her sorcery like. It's not like she just, it's not a story about her becoming a sorceress. It's like she's already been using sorcery. As soon as they get thrown in the fucking prison cell, she literally lies down and goes to sleep and waits to die. She literally lies down and dies. That's your hero. And Tigra finds a way to actually outsmart her captors, she actually has to escape, gets recaptured, escapes, recaptured. So it's like this, it's this cat and mouse game where she has to, like, she's far away from home. She has to go through all these treacherous lands where there's monsters and creatures and shit trying to kill you. And then she's being hunted by these sort of, like, subhuman mongrel, like, uh, I don't know, like primitive creatures with spears and shit. So, and she has no weapons. The only thing that she has is any weapons that she happens to acquire, but she has to use stealth and she has to outsmart her captors. And she, she's got to think on her feet because she's being, cap- she's being chased the entire time. And 
Zod literally lays down as like and tells the scholar like, "Oh fuck it, everyone dies, so I guess we're just gonna just wait to die in this fucking cage." That's really the fucking point of the entire movie. Is the spine of night is basically the point of the movie is like, no matter what you do in your life, whatever your lot in life is, whatever you whatever you decide to take on as your purpose in life, it doesn't matter because you're going to fucking die anyways. <laughs> That's the whole point of the spine of item. I'm sorry. If I'm missing something, please contact me on Instagram at skeleton underscore factory, because I don't fucking, I don't, there's no point uh, to the end of the movie at all. Um, anyways, also, I mean, uh, where, where Tigger comes from, in Fighter Keep, there's a very clear order of um, the power dynamics of, of Fire Keep. You know, she is the daughter of a king, and she has a warrior brother who's the prince, and the, the whole point is there, Necron is, lives in this, like, fortress of solitude ice castle, and he wants to destroy the world by create. He can kind of summon glaciers to just grow. Just he, he can just make glaciers appear and just just destroy land. And you can't stop a glacier. You know, you can have a biggest army in the world. You can't stop this unstoppable force. This frozen mountain just plowing through the through the wasteland. So Necron is already a much more imposing bad guy because he doesn't even need to physically be in your face burning down your village. Like, he is miles and miles and miles away in his own private fortress just doing all this through with his mind. So, also, and hopefully if you're listening to this, you know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> like, if, if you haven't seen any of these movies, like, just pause, pause this podcast and go watch, um, what is it? The Swamp of, Swamp Thing? The Spine. The Spine of, Spine of Night. Go watch that. Um, it's not free anywhere, so sorry, you're going to have to actually pay for it. And then, Go watch Fire and Ice, which you can go see for free. I think it's on like Voodoo and Tubi and shit. It's probably on YouTube. You can go see it for free. Watch both those movies and then come back to this. Okay? Anyways. So, just so we're clear, if you're listening to this, you probably already saw Fire and Ice and you probably already saw Spine of Night. Otherwise, you'd probably be completely lost about what I'm talking about from here on out. Okay? Cool. So... So Zod is, uh, she's from the Swamp of Bastal, and it's unclear the social order besides Zod is the ruler, I guess, because she happens to know some magic. So she gets, she gets, so the opening of the movie, they're having like a ritual and, uh, what was it, Patton Oswalt's was it Lord Pyranton? I'm just going to call him Patton Oswalt because I'm not going to remember Lord Pyranton. Um, so Patton Oswalt sends his 
uh, sends a bunch of his soldiers down to the swamp. And it's like the smallest civilization ever. There's like a dozen people who live in Bastal. And Zod's doing a whole kind of fireside magic ritual and everyone's like, ooh, ah, this is cool. And then the soldiers come and fucking kill everybody and then capture Zod. Okay, so Pat Oswald just... It's this uh, whole thing where she gets an audience with Pat Oswald and she basically tricks him and uh, uses this... She has like this wreath. This like It looks like it's just a a bush, a, like a bush of leaves, but it's supposed to be a flower, whatever, around her neck. Like she's wearing this sort of like, like scarf made of leaves. And she takes one of them and she puts it into this, you know, this little fire cauldron, you know, and, and it basically it turns blue and all these sort of like images appear in it. And Pat Oswald comes over and is like, wow, Swamp Witch, like, Ooh, you can do magical things. And then she takes the fucking, blue fireball and just throws it in his face and just completely burns and disfigures his fucking face. And for her trouble, she gets thrown in prison and then Patton Oswald has her entire swamp burnt to the ground. So she looks out of her prison window and sees her swamp being burnt. Now, am I the only one who's like, uh, how do you burn down a swamp? Isn't it a swamp by definition? Mostly water and mud and marsh. I understand there's trees and shit, but if you live in a swamp and there's like a fire, how how worried are you really? Okay, like I'm from Northern California. We have every fire season in Northern California is worse than the previous year. Okay. It's because of poor leadership in California. It's ran by assholes. But that's besides the point. You don't hear about, like, giant wildfires in, like, Louisiana. You don't hear about swamps burning to the fucking ground. Like, that. I don't know. Anyways, Penn Oswald burns down her swamp village. And there was actually no indication that there was an actual real village there. There wasn't buildings and houses and effigies and horse stables or anything nothing like that like from what you can tell they just live in the woods it's like okay so even when he does that like you don't really feel bad at all because you're like okay you burnt you burnt down a swamp and you killed the like 10 people that live there and it's really like the only time she shows emotion in the entire movie like she kind of screams and I wrote some notes. <laughs> I wrote, I tried to write notes as I was watching the movie the second time. Because like I said before, the first time I watched The Spine of Night, I fell asleep three times. And I blame that on a variety of reasons. Like I'm, I might have just been kind of tired that day. Um, I have a very snuggly dog. And, you know, sometimes your dog wants to snuggle next to you and then both pass out and take a nap that happens but i fell asleep three times so i wasn't really sure what i watched so when i watched it a second time i was like okay i i I know what's going on i'm gonna write some notes and uh, i'm gonna 
I kind of gave up on writing notes at a certain point because things got so everything became such a jumbled mess. I was like, I'm, I refuse to take any more notes, but I'll just read what I actually typed out. Okay. So yeah, I talk about Zod walking naked through the snow, talk about the bloom, which is the kind of magical flower that she wears around her neck. There's a mention of the night of a thousand suns. Let's see. Zod is attacked by the character of Mongrel, played by Joe Magnello. Joe Magnanello. Another, I can't say his name. I like Joe Magnanello though. That he's fine. He was good in the Pee Wee movie. <laughs> Let's see. Everyone is killed but Zod, the witch. There is full frontal. Nu- There's a lot of full frontal nudity. There's like little things in this movie that kind of just kind of wake you up a little bit. And one of them is like, oh, wow, there's there's a lot of pubic hair and dicks in this movie. A lot of dicks and balls and armpit hair and uh, pubic hair. There's a lot of that. And exposed ass cheeks. All right, that's cool. Let's see. There's the, let's see, Galsor, the scholar is a bad guy. Lord Pyranton is Patton Oswald. Lord Pyranton has daddy issues and suffers from alcoholism. <laughs> These were my notes. My God. Um, let's see. Yeah, I talk about how Zod burns Pine Oswald's face. She gets imprisoned. Oh, yeah. she. Okay, so there there came a point where um, the, the scholar Galsor actually tries to defend uh, Zod from uh, Mongrel. Like, Mongrel takes a swipe at the witch with his axe, and the scholar jumps in the way. He's like, no! And the, and the axe sort of, like, cuts, like, his shoulder, like, his upper back shoulder area, and, and like, slices him a little bit. And once they get in the cell, Zod goes over there and, like, takes one of the leaves off of her scarf and, like, chews it, and then, like, like the because the whole point is the 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 plant the bloom has magical powers so she takes a bite of it and then touches his wound and it seals up it closes and yeah of course and I mentioned before like she it just never occurred to her to use her powers to break out of fucking prison and tell the scholars like hey you know how you know magic can you like magically blow a fucking hole in the wall so we can get the fuck out of here. Like, it doesn't even occur to our hero until the fucking bad guy explains that to her. Okay, so there's this whole thing where they they escape from jail. Zod and Galsor escape from the Patton Oswalt's prison, and then Patton Oswalt and one of his um one of his guards, I guess. That's another thing. Like he has this castle and kingdom and shit, but there's like like no one's there. It's like every kingdom is like five people. <laughs> it's like okay, so they go after them on horseback, and Galsor like kills the guard, and then uh, Zod uses magic to throw Patton Oswald off the horse, and then fucking drowns him in the swamp. And then Galsor betrays Zod, like stabs her from behind and kills her. 
and just throws her in the fucking swamp and takes her uh, scarf of of flowers and is like, I'm going to take your fucking flowers and I'm going to find out how these fucking things work. Sorry about that. Sound like a dumb truck outside slammed on its brakes. So basically, our main character dies in the beginning of the movie. So when it cuts to Zod walking up the snowy mountain, you're like, okay, is this like the afterlife? She's dead? And basically, she goes up to the top of the mountain where there's this character called the Guardian who's sort of guarding guarding the last of the bloom. It's like one of the flowers of the bloom is left over. And he's guarding it. That's like all he does. He's alone. Again, another location with the most minimal amount of people possible there. There's literally one guy there with a sword. And she explains... Like, the whole story is like, it's like the Princess Bride. It's like, she sits there while the Guardian is, I don't know, is he sick and dying? Or is he bored? He's basically, he takes his helmet off and lays down, and she basically tells him the story that that is the rest of the movie. So, you're already like, okay, so none, none of the story matters. Like, no one's, like, nothing matters because it's like... Spoilers, we know she survives all of it. So, like, what's happening? Like, it it bounces through time quite a bit in this movie. And I think because of the quality of the animation, it gets confusing of, like, where are we in time right now? So, yeah, I don't, I don't know if the big snowy mountain is supposed to be, like, the afterlife or what they were doing with that. Let's see, there was, I don't, there was like a blind beggar outside of the, outside the Pantheon, because the pan, outside the Pantheon is sort of like this shitty village and everyone's like starving and poor and shit, but there's like this like blind old man who's like begging at one point and whoever, whoever that guy is, like his voice is fantastic. And he has some cool lines, too. Um, Then they introduce... Oh, my God. Okay, another fucking name that I'm going to completely butcher. But here we go. Uh, I think I actually wrote it phonetically, just so I can read it later. Fiagura. Fiagura. Sounds like I'm talking backwards. That is a character in this movie, Fiagura. Do you want to try to figure out how that's spelled? Think about that for a second. Fiagura. Okay, it's spelled... Actually, there's my phonetic version. What is the actual way that it's spelled? I I was close. I was one letter off. Okay, Fiagura. Feagra, P H A E hyphen A G U R A. Feagra is also a scholar, like Gal Sur, but is like 
a good scholar and not evil, basically. And she's one of the scholars at the Pantheon. At the Pantheon. Let's see. She's sort of... And then there's another character, um, Inquisitor Uruk. And Uruk is the... Who's also... Whoever that actor is has a pretty decent voice. Is like the head of the pantheon. Is like the main sort of orator of the of the pantheon. And so there's a period of time where some time has passed, and Galsor is imprisoned in the pantheon, and he's old as fuck. So I mean, you can kind of tell. I didn't. I couldn't tell it was him at first, but he's like. It's definitely him, but he's, like, kind of old, and he has, like, a gray beard and shit. So, Fiagra's character brought, like, a wheelbarrow, wheelbarrow, uh, like a like a horse and buggy kind of thing of, of books that contained secret knowledge um, about the bloom flower, because that was the whole thing, is, like, Galsor stole the the bloom flowers from Zod, but didn't know how they worked exactly. And he's been kept imprisoned in this, in, in the Pantheon. And now these books show up where, uh, Inquisitor Oric goes to him and is like, can you interpret these books? Can you read this text? And, Galsor is like, yeah, this this will tell me everything I need to know about the power of the bloom and how the power is, um, basically how the magic of the bloom works. And Uruk is basically like, I want you to interpret all this and then share the, the information with me and share how the power of this flower works. And Galsor is like, sure, I'll totally do that. I'll totally not betray you and kill everyone. So uh, Galsor speaks a incantation that possesses all of the townspeople. So he's in jail in the in the pantheon, and he's able to read this book. He starts reading this incantation uh, incantation in one of the books, and it possesses all the townspeople, all the like poor, starving townspeople. And the main castle gate guards of the Pantheon, like there's two guys out front with axes and so it possesses all of them and the peasants and and the guards like break through the gates and they try to steal all the sort of like winter food rations from the Pantheon. And basically what happens is all of the scholars there's a bunch of scholars there and they're sort of they're kind of like warriors in a way like they're sort of warrior uh, i guess they're kind of like templar knights except they kind of suck at fighting <laughs> like they have this dedication to knowledge but they also have a dedication to uh war but it's this whole thing where the scholars and the peasant people, they all just like kill the fuck out of each other. And there's just tons of bloodshed. And that's what Galsor needed to make his incantation work is he needed like tons of bloodshed, but he didn't like the only way he can do it from his cell is to, um, 
perform an incantation in order to make people kill each other. So Gulsor performs the ritual and then he possesses Uruk. And once he possesses Uruk's body, he kills the villagers and the rest of the scholars and then kills Uruk himself. And then he is freed. And once he's freed, Gulsor destroys the, um, it's called the Asherban Pantheon. So he basically kills everyone, all the scholars, kills all the peasants, kills Uruk, who is the head of everything, and then fucking just destroys the entire Pantheon. And then after that, he takes up an army. I don't know where his fucking army comes from. There's like the, the, like the largest group of people that you see in the entire fucking movie is Galsor's army. And they're, you know, he, he has, <laughs> so he takes up an army and destroys, he, he goes around and they kind of show him being evil. They go to a village and they fucking kill everybody. And, and it's weird. He's, he's being carried on this throne, this sort of like throne on a platform by his sort of, by like, I'm assuming slaves. So he's being carried on this throne on a platform and all of the slaves that are carrying his platform are, are noticeably one, they're like dick and ball naked, but they're also totally shaved. They're the only, they're the only non uh, pubic hair having people in the entire movie. Very interesting. <laughs> I want my slaves to be shaved. <laughs> I'm not going to have somebody with a gnarly pubes carrying my throne. Uh, that's weird. Anyways, another thing in, is like all the boobs in this movie are strange. The tits are too round and fake looking. I feel like Ralph Bakshi and Frank Frazetta, and when they made Fire and Ice, they made much more anatomically convincing uh, uh, boobs. Yeah. I'm not the only one who thought that, okay? Yeah, my wife agreed with me. Okay, so that's not me being some kind of uh, pervert or anything. Uh, you know, she mentioned, like, what's with everyone's tits? Why are, Why does everyone look like they have a boob job and not, like, a good one? I'm like, I don't know. You know, like, Tigra, Tigra and Fire and Ice had, a, like, an like an anatomically convincing-looking body. She didn't look like she had, uh, I don't know, like a Kardashian level of, like, body modification plastic surgery <laughs> anyways uh, oh yeah and this is where basically my notes end <laughs> the let's see uh, let's see I talked about tits and then I talked about um, there was the story they told the story of the seer and okay they they mentioned um, there was these Go, there was like these giant god-like creatures called the suns, and the suns were dropped off on Earth, and they are the sons of God. 
and God is also a son who was the son of God and so on and so forth. And which is funny because uh, the sons are like, like huge giants. They're like the, uh, what you want to call it? They're like the Sentinels from the X-Men cartoon. They're huge. They're gigantic skyscraper, like, uh, you know, like uh, human creatures. And they tell the story of the, okay, so basically, God, okay. The sons get dropped off on earth. One of the sons has a dream. Like he dreamt humans into existence. Okay. Cause he's a God and you can just dream shit into existence. He dreamed humans into existence and the humans sort of ran around the earth and they, they were very primitive. They didn't, they, you know, struggled with very primitive troubles, like get acquiring food and shelter and things like that. And, one of the, one of, you know, one of these people went to one of the sons and was like, please help us. You are these godly creatures and we need your help. We're, we're starving to death and whatnot. And, and the, the, the son just kind of like, just, they're emotionless. They don't even show emoji. They just, he just kind of looked at this little person and just was like, just walked away. I was like, Fuck you, man. He probably couldn't even hear him. You know, he's just a little tiny person. He probably couldn't even hear what the fuck he was saying. So, um, you know, the 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 little people felt all fucking uh, pissed off that the sons wouldn't, you know, use their godliness to help them. So, so the god, the gods, when they go to the sons, rather, when they go to sleep, they just lay down on the ground. So imagine a, imagine a, uh, like. 50 story building just lying down on its side. That's like how big the suns are. And so they decided that, Oh, we're going to kill the suns while they're sleeping. Cause they got to go to sleep at some time. I don't know why they're gods. Well, I don't know why God's got to sleep, but they basically sneak up on them and like kill them. It's like slit their throats with a tiny spear. Okay. That's like, <laughs> That's like if you had a pet hamster and your pet hamster took a toothpick, climbed up on your chest and tried to slit your throat with the toothpick. Like the hamster's not going to get too far. You know, human skin's just too thick and hamsters aren't that, uh, they're, they, they, they can't operate tools. <laughs> so, so, they're definitely not going to slit your throat. So that's basically what they, they're like, Oh, these little people like attacked the sons while they're sleeping and like slit their throats with these tiny fucking spears. And they feel like from the ground would imagine throwing a spear from the ground into the window of a 50 story building. Okay. That's basically what they're doing. They throw the spear at this giant God monster and fucking kill it. Like, hit it in the face and it dies. Imagine throwing a spear at Godzilla. And the spear hits Godzilla in the fucking face. And he's like, oh, God! And is flailing his arms and fucking falls to the ground. 
and dies. That's basically what happens in that story. The the Sears story. It's it's stupid. <laughs> these fucking these these the the sons, these giant monsters should have just stomped these little fucking fucking rabble rousing shithead villagers under their feet like ants. I don't know. And that's basically where my notes, that's kind of, so if you watch the movie, that's about where I fucking just started losing interest. And I tried, I mean, I, I did watch the rest of the movie, but I just, it just, I completely lost interest. There was a few battle scenes and kind of things like that where the visuals were kind of cool. There was a couple like gore scenes where you know people get murdered and it's like oh that was kind of neat, but other than that, like I, I felt the movie was way too long. It wasn't even really that long. It's like an hour and a half long, but it felt like it was fucking twice as long. I don't know. I just I was really bored. I got I got really bored with it. So. I don't know. I don't think I'm going to watch it a third time. And I tried, people. Believe me. I tried. I wanted to like this movie. I went into it being very stoked. And I don't know. I I, I don't know what else to say. I, I If you like fantasy sword and sorcery shit, like, you'll, maybe you'll like this movie. If you like animation and fantasy novels and fucking Dungeons and Dragons and shit like that. You'll, you'll probably really like this movie. Okay. But it's just not my particular cup of tea. So I know, I know I sat here and just shat all over the fucking movie for, um, almost an hour, (laughs) but it's, it's okay. It's an okay movie. It's, it's, but, uh, I mean, it's, I don't know. I feel like in the realm of rotoscope, in the realm of fantasy, in the realm of sort of violent extreme animation, you know, all all the things that this movie is, there's better versions of all those things. I definitely recommend, like, watch Ralph Bakshi's Fire and Ice. I think it's far superior in terms of the, the the animation. I feel the story is a lot more cut and dry. It's a much more simpler story, but it's an adventure fantasy movie. Like, how complicated do you need it to be? <laughs> like, so, but I feel like everything about Fire and Ice is superior. Um, so I. I I don't know. The Spine of Nights we're seeing at least once, I guess, but, and it's definitely has its audience. And I know people are super stoked about it and shit, but I'm just like, I can't make myself, I can't pretend that I like something that I don't. (laughs) So anyways, that being said, if you're going to just watch a bunch of Ralph Bakshi shit, I mean, like go watch American pop, go watch, uh, watch heavy metal. Definitely watch heavy metal. You know, may, you know what? Maybe how about this? Maybe you see the spine of night. You watch the trailer rather. You watch the trailer, 
and you're like, mm, I don't know if I want to cough up the fucking six ninety nine to rent this fucking thing. Just go watch Fire Nice. Go watch Heavy Metal. You'll be just as happy. Okay. So enough of that. So today I, in keeping with uh, cartoons, animation, comics, things like that, I guess I'll bring up this. I watched Boiled Angels, The Trial of Michael Diana this morning. Boiled Angels, The Trial of Michael Diana. It's a 2018 documentary about Michael Diana. He was an underground cartoonist from Florida that becomes the first American artist to be convicted of obscenity. And it's, uh, it's, it's not directed, but it's, uh, edited by Frank Henenlotter. So if you're a fan of, uh, Frankenhooker and basket case, you know, you know, Frank Henenlotter has had his fingers all over this, this documentary. And it was really good. Um, I had the story of the of, of so Boiled Angel was a a zine. It was like an independent comic, rather, uh, in the early nineteen nineties, created by Michael Diana and a friend of mine um, brought this story to my attention, and then. You know, I found out there's a documentary, and I was like, well, I'm going to watch that. So, basically what happens is Michael Diana had a whole... He, he had a, a comic called Boiled Angel, and it depicted several explicit, extreme things in it. Keep in mind, this is a... It's not even drawn realistically. Like, it's very, it's very, like, crude, almost, like, childlike art of things such as, it depicts things like rape and murder and necrophilia, things, things of that nature, uh, molestation from Catholic priests, things of that nature. Pretty, uh, pretty extreme, uncomfortable scenarios, but it's sort of wrapped in this like goofy art style. And there's, I mean, there's things in the boiled angel comics that there's, there's a level of, satire so there was some thought was put um into this sort of depiction of gory and taboo subject matter but michael diana he got nabbed for uh an obscenity charge went to court put up a had a whole legal battle and he ended up getting sentenced to um, well, he he would have he could have possibly went to prison for three years, but he ended up doing three years of probation, and he had to do a ton of extra shit. He had to do, he had to have, like he had to have a full time job, 
So he had to work 40 hours a week. He had to do something like 1,200 hours of community service. He had to take a like journalism ethics class or something like that and pass. He had, to, he had this laundry list of shit to do. You know, the and the and the lawyers that were prosecuting him were real fucking cocksuckers too. And they actually were in the documentary too. And you just fucking hate them the whole time. And the judge was a total piece of shit too. And it just goes to show like it's the, the basically the documentary is an example of like the, your freedom of speech is incredibly important. The first amendment is incredibly important and you know, taste in art is going to vary widely. And the people who got Michael Diana sentenced, you know, to, I mean, a lesser charge, but still, if you've, if you had to go to court and get fucking, if you've ever got wrapped up in the fucking legal system in any way, and maybe you didn't have to do jail time, but you had to do like court ordered fucking drug rehab or fucking AA or community service or anything like that. Like it fucking sucks. You, you know, you got to pay a bunch of fines. You, it eats up a ton of your time and you're just, it's, it's horrible. It's horrible. I've had it happen to me in my early twenties and it was fucking bad. And it's one of those things where you just get fucking rolled by the system. Like they, like people definitely get fucked by the system and there are mechanisms in place to fuck people over. <laughs> and it varies very much depending on your where you live, you know, and where your so-called crimes take place, but it's one of those it's a documentary where at the end of the day it's like you may not like somebody's art, you may think it's garbage or whatever, but they have the right to express themselves and you have the right to express themselves. What you don't have the right to do is imprison somebody because you don't like the art they make. Like that's, and we live in now, 2021, we live in a time where we are maybe not legally, but the whole sort of cancel woke culture is sort of a way of sidestepping because people know that they can't go after people legally. Because, you know, you're not going to get people thrown in fucking jail for, you know, what they tweet or, you know, whatever. Like, you can't, you know, you can't get people imprisoned, but you can, like, ruin their fucking lives. <laughs> so, and that's somehow legal. Anyways, I will say the, uh, it's a very, very good documentary, and I definitely recommend it. I just, I'll probably go back and watch it again because there's, and I'll probably do some, I want to do some more research into, it's a very thorough documentary. It definitely goes into who Michael Diana is. And from from what I can tell from the documentary, like Michael Diana seems like a completely harmless kind of, you know, uh, kind of guy. Like he was raised in a, a good household. He he was gainfully employed. He seemed like he never harmed anyone or committed anything illegal and had good relationships with people. Like basically they try to paint him as 
what they got him on was some like minority report level shit. They were basically like your cartoons are so violent and depraved that you are on the road to becoming a fucking serial killer. And because we decided that that's the case, you should go to jail because we're preventing you from your inevitable transition into going from drawing graphic images to committing mass murder. That's literally what the fucking court in Florida decided when they tried Michael Diana. And it's, it's fucking scary. I know this was like the nineties. This was like a long time ago, but it's that could happen today. (laughs) At least that's how I feel. And, um, I mean, Michael Diana is, he's not imprisoned. Uh, he currently, um, I guess he lives in New York. He can't go back to Florida ever. I mean, when he got sentenced to probation, they told him that he couldn't even draw anymore. Think about that. They told him, like, what you drew, your cartoons were so offensive that we're going to have people designated by the state to come to your house come into your home whenever they want and make sure that you're not drawing anything that we don't like to the point where they didn't even want him having drawing material in his home. It's fucking scary. So Michael Diana fucking, you know, did his probation and then fucking left town and, you know, he tried to appeal the whole fucking thing. And basically he skipped town and, when he wasn't supposed to, and now, you know, if he goes to Florida, he can get fucking arrested. But I think, what was it, at the end of the movie, they explained that all the, um, whatever, fines or whatever that he was supposed to fucking pay, but didn't, like, you know, the, the the people who made the movie actually, like, took care of all that. So, I guess he can go back to Florida now, but, I mean... The whole thing is fucked. And, but I definitely recommended it. It's called Boiled Angels, the trial of uh, Michael Diana. And if you actually want to check out some of his work, you can go to his website. It's Mike Diana, D I A N A, like Princess Diana, Mike Diana Comics with an X dot com, C O M I X dot com, Mike Diana Comics dot com. And, He's got a ton of stuff on there. He has a lot of his artwork and he has posters. There's music. There's shirts. There's uh, sculptures. There's one called the world's largest fetus. And let me describe what the world's largest fetus looks like. It comes in a plain box. And on top, it says world's largest fetus. And then there's like a little cartoon picture of a fetus. And then it says um, MCD Novelty Company, New York City, USA. And what is inside is a a sculpture of an anatomically correct all pink. It's like this. The whole thing is Pepto-Bismol color. It's like this kind of dull pink color. And it's a little sculpture of a fetus with a giant dick 
like a huge dick, but it's connected to a tiny fetus and it's called the world's largest fetus. And it's a sculpture and it's limited edition and it's, uh, and it's made, it was made by Michael Diana. It was designed by Michael Diana. It's $60 plus shipping and handling. So with, if you're in the U S that's $8 shipping. So it's for $68. You can get a sculpture of a pink fetus with a giant dick. Interesting. What else? Let's see. There are signed numbered copies of the original Boiled Angel. That's where the name comes from. Boiled Angel was the name of his comic. His It was like a zine. It was like a Xerox comic zine. And all eight issues of Boiled Angel are on here. And they are $20 each plus postage. And they are signed and numbered. So that's cool. But yeah, there's a bunch of stuff on here. MikeDianaComics.com Go support his website. He's making really cool shit. Um, If you're not into like weird comics. You know, and kind of underground stuff. Which I actually touched on on this very podcast. I did an episode. Uh, it was episode four. It was episode four. It was entitled Crumb, best documentary ever, plus horror movie watch list for October. Yeah. It is a, yeah, on that episode. It was an episode about the film Crumb, about Robert Crumb, famous American cartoonist. Um, and he did a lot of great underground comics of very, very uh, adult subject matter and with very challenging point of views on a variety of things from race to sex and Things of that nature. Here's a random thing. If you ever saw, and, and I mentioned earlier, I saw Cabin in the Woods, and the people I was watching with, like, there's, there's a, there's a group of okay, so like the group of college kids that go up to the cabin in the woods, and then they eventually all start getting killed. You know, your typical horror movie formula. There's like the jock guy. There's the kind of uh, the slutty girl. There is the kind of bookworm smart dude. And there is the virgin innocent girl, even though the girl in the movie is not a virgin at all. Um, And then there's like the stoner guy. So the stoner guy in the beginning of Cabin in the Woods, he pulls up, he pulls up in his car and he has like a one of those like stainless steel travel coffee mugs but his is like like a 2 foot bong but it's a travel coffee cup but it's a bong and i could not help but look up or is that real is that like a real bong I don't smoke. I haven't smoked a fucking bong 
I can't even remember the last time I smoked a bong, like 2019 or something. Anyways, uh, are those coffee mug bongs real? And in fact, they are. You can go to coffeemugpipe.com and you can get a, <laughs> they have one with removable stainless steel inner, um, like an inner separate thing that keeps, uh, you can actually drink coffee out of the fucking thing. But it's it's like a but it's extendable. It's like a telescope. It's like an old timey telescope where you can use it as a bong, and then you can collapse the thing into an actual like coffee travel thing and drink out of it. So, just curious, how much are these fucking things? Oh my god! Okay, well, it looks like. This particular brand is out of stock. So I guess don't go to this website because these motherfuckers can't even keep their shit in stock. Anyway, let's see. I saw a video today and it was entitled One Guy, One Mousetrap. So one guy, one mousetrap. It is, well, let's see. I'm going to read the description of this video. Um, And this is coming from Screamer.Wiki. This is their uh, description of the video entitled One Guy, One Mousetrap. Okay, here we go. One Guy, One Mousetrap is a shock video uploaded on eFucked. was uploaded to eFucked on February 1st, 2016. The video is of a male... A male Anon? The fuck does that mean? The video of a male Anon putting his penis into a mousetrap, which also has a thumbtack on it. The shock video first starts out with some easy listening music and the text Spurglord Penis versus Mousetrap. I don't know what Spurglord means. Then the video cuts to the man pulling back his foreskin and stimulating his penis to allow it to firmly hit the mousetrap. The mousetrap... Oh my god. Okay, the camera then zooms in on the thumbtack to foreshadow what is to come. The video then zooms back out and the man lowers his penis onto the trap. The thumbtack is now firmly inside the tip of his penis. Since the Anon's penis was just stabbed with a thumbtack, Anon starts to pant, pant loudly, the man then attempts to remove the thumbtack and and mousetrap from his penis. Crack! The thumbtack and mousetrap are now removed. Yeah, so once the thing closes, once the trap closes down on his penis, he tries to open it, and then it slips out of his hand, 
and it fucking recloses down on the head of his dick. And the first time it goes in, it's just a thumbtack and mousetrap stabbed through his dick, like pinching the tip of his dick. But it's not till when he tries to open it, and then it accidentally slams closed again and begins to bleed. Okay? Just, just for, you know, so you can have a clear picture of what's going on. Okay, I'm going to read the rest now. The thumbtack and mousetrap are now removed, but now Anon is bleeding all over the place, which goes on for around 30 seconds. Near the end of these 30 seconds, text with the words, go ahead, try this at home, appears, and right afterwards, the man realizes he should probably end the video and does. And this was on efuck.com. Released on February 1st, 2016. So it's kind of an older video, but it just came to my attention today. So when you think about all of the serious things going on in the world, you know, just just know that there, there was a guy. Let's see. February 1st, 2016. So there was a time in this country where, during the Obama administration, where a guy um, affixed a thumbtack to a mouse trap, set the trap, and dropped his dick into the trap and filmed it and uploaded it to the internet. You know? So, I mean, with all the things going on in the world, you know, just know that there's people out there sticking their dick in mouse traps. Okay? I don't know if that's going to bring you any comfort at all, but it, it kind of brings me some uh, worldly perspective, you know? Basically, what I'm saying is don't watch too much news. It'll just make you insane. Sometimes you need to you need to um, break apart all of the um, external stressors of the world, the news, the politics, the um, all the all the social upheaval. <laughs> you need to detach from those things, and the things that detach you from there are uh, movies and. Videos of guys sticking their dicks in mouse traps, and of course, um, high quality whiskey. Mm. That's good shit. Okay, I just want to let you know, like when you listen to this, when you listen to this show, I just want to let you know that you know the world is not all that bad, and if you plan for the worst. You know, you'll be okay. You know, it's it's a stressful time for everybody. And we all deal with, I think, everyone has v varying levels of depression. But just know you can listen to this show and uh, I won't judge you. That's not true. I, I probably will judge you, but... 
but uh, not in a malicious way. You know, I still, I still, I still accept people as human individuals, and uh, I think we can, we can all enjoy movies together. We can all enjoy watching guys stick their dick in mouse traps and laugh about it, and be freaked out and cringed by it. You know that. That's the glue of the world. The glue of the world is all the dumb nonsense. And uh you know, we can't forget that. And we can't let all the dumb shit, you know, we it needs to and needs to be appreciated for what it is because all the really serious stuff I mean that that that's the stuff that ends up, you know, having you killing your fucking neighbors. (laughs) Well, I'm going to get out of here. Thanks for listening. And I'm going to leave you with some wiser words from a wiser man. The late, great Rod Serling. I'll catch you on the next one. Goodbye. walk into this room at your own risk because it leads to the future not a future that will be but one that might be this is not a new world it is simply an extension of what began in the old one it has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time it has refinements technological advances and a more sophisticated approach the destruction of human freedom. But like every one of the super states that preceded it, it has one iron rule. Logic is an enemy and truth is a menace. <laughs>